The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, good morning. Uh, let me pray for us real quick. Jesus, please uh, be with us this morning. Um, please let your words uh, come forth and uh, uh, just let us have uh, hearts to receive from you. In his name we pray, amen. Well, uh, my name is Grant Primo. I'm an elder here. Jonathan uh, went to a conference this week, so he couldn't preach. And Brad uh, just had a baby, which is a much better excuse than a conference. I think Jonathan should use that next time. He's got so many kids, no one would notice. He'd just be like, I had another kid. He'd be like, oh, yeah, that seems right. Um, but I'm guessing everyone between Brad and me also went to a conference or had a baby this week. So uh, we're down to me, but we're going to have fun uh, this morning, I think. Um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Jonathan's been in a series in uh, Judges. And I was hoping when he asked me if I would speak it, that I would get to continue on with the book of Judges because, man, it's just so uncomplicated and easy, you know, exegesis 101 with Judges. But Jonathan said, nay, Grant, and you can tell this is a true story because I'm using Jonathan's authentic old-timey vernacular, um, but he said, nay, Grant, you shan't preach out of Judges. You need more of a challenge. And I was, I'm a good Christian. I take my pastor's correction, so I was like, okay. Um, so instead, this morning, we're going to be in, in Hebrews 4, and I want to explore a question this morning. Uh, which is, uh, why are we restless? And why are we restless? And I don't mean restless in the sense of, like, boredom. Like, I get restless when my, when my kid, you know, is, is first in the dance recital and I have to sit through the next hour and a half. I'm, I'm talking about restlessness in more of an ex- existential sense. Like, why do we get restless in our lives? Why do we have, you know, get these times where we have this sense of unease, um, of discontentedness, of dissatisfaction with kind of our lives and, and our purpose and our direction. Um, so, w- at least in my life, when I start feeling this kind of restless feeling, I tend to start like planning a trip for the future. And, you know, all of a sudden I have like a, a road trip out west for 2028 planned down to the minute. Um, for my wife, Brooke, I think when she gets restless, she starts like wanting to get a new pet, and she'll come to me and she'll be like, I think I want a goat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Are you okay? Do we need, do we need to like schedule some counseling or something? Um, but to, to varying degrees, I think we all struggle with, with a lack of contentment, with unease at times, um, with, with restlessness. I saw a study that showed that symptoms of anxiety have been steadily ticking up a couple percent a year for the past 80 years. Um, So by like 2050, we're going to have 200% anxiety. Um, And it seems like even uh, even though we live in a society where we don't really need for much, we have more restlessness. Uh, Benjamin and Jenna Story are two... Uh, Christian professors, they, they wrote an amazing book on, on restlessness, and I'm, I'm drawing from pretty heavily this morning, but they noticed that restlessness seems to be even more prevalent among the fortunate. You know, this is what, what they said. 
We live in an age of unprecedented prosperity, yet everywhere we see signs that our pursuit of happiness has proven fruitless. Restlessness pervades American life, shown in our love for the screen, with its diversions and distractions, in our demand for an endless variety in what we eat and drink and wear, in our appetite for mind-altering substances, from pot to Prozac to Pinot Grigio, and in our fascination with crises in almost every area of human life. In other words, it seems like even in our prosperity, the primary ways that we arrange and live our lives uh, leads to restlessness and, and not to peace. You know, as Christians, though, God promises us rest. You know, as, as Bill read just a minute ago, so at least we should be at peace, right? Well, uh, I know that's not true of me all the time. I think part of the problem is that we have inherited a, a philosophical framework, a way that we view our lives and arrange our lives from our culture that colors the way we see ourselves and we see God. And I think we often don't even understand or, or realize how those things are impacting the way that we make decisions. Uh, you know, we're like fish swimming in the waters of the, the cultural philosophy that we've inherited. And so I think a lot of times we try to pursue peace through the ways of the world and it leads to restlessness instead. So my, my goal for this morning is to try to peel back those lenses at least a little bit um, so that we might uh, look at the rest that God promises in, in Hebrews 4 and take a, a different perspective and see how it contrasts with the way that, that we tend to live our lives. Um, and, and how I want to do that is to explore some of the uh, kind of dominant ideas, dominant ways that we kind of view ourselves in, in our culture and um, then see how that contrasts with Hebrews 4. Okay, uh, so first I want to explain what I mean by like, uh, you know, how we view ourselves, how we view our, our lives and, and how our surrounding culture uh, shapes us. And I'm going to use the word philosophy a lot and please don't let that put you off. I'm not trying to be like super academic or highbrow. It's, it's really just the most practical thing in the world. I'm just talking about how we view ourselves, how we understand ourselves and our place in the world and how that affects our everyday decisions and beliefs. So, you know, you weren't just born with an innate understanding of the world, right? You know, it might seem like it comes naturally, but we, uh, our view of the world and ourselves is, is shaped by our parents, by our friends, by our family, um, by teachers, and to a large extent, just by the surrounding culture. You know, it's things we pick up from, from movies and TV shows and social media and interactions at the grocery store. Uh, psychologist Philip Cushman, I think, described this really well. He said, culture is not like clothing that we put on. Instead, it infuses individuals, fundamentally shaping and forming how we conceive of ourselves and the world and how we make choices in the everyday life. So I, I think to understand how that culture, that, that stuff that has infused us and is shaping how we make decisions and how we view ourselves, to, to understand that culture, we have to go back to 16th century French philosophy. 
It's exactly what you were expecting this morning, right? And look at French philosophy. But stick with me. I think this is going to make a lot of sense. Um, so there was a French philosopher from the 1600s. His name was uh, Michel de Montaigne. And I'm butchering that, but I'm not a Frenchman. I eat freedom fries. Um, but Montaigne was, he was a highly influential writer and philosopher, and he articulated two ideas about uh, human life that I think really influence American life to this day. You know, first, he encouraged people to see themselves as individuals, and then second, to dedicate themselves to seeking contentment in the here and now, in material pleasures. And I know you're thinking, that's super underwhelming. How is, how is that influential? And that's because he was so successful in casting that vision of life that that's what you think is normal. Um, it was in stark contrast, though, to the culture at the time. Uh, so let's dig into this a little bit. First, he encouraged people to view themselves primarily as, as individuals, as opposed to viewing themselves as members of a group or in relation to like universal truths about man. In traditional societies, in the society that Montaigne lived in, um, the, the, the dominant way of viewing yourself would have been, you know, maybe in relation to the group that you were a part of. So, um, you know, you might think, okay, I'm a son of uh, a father. I'm the, I'm the firstborn son, and my family is fishermen, so I'm a fisherman. That's my identity. I'm the firstborn fisherman's son. You know, it's in relation to that group. And, and another way in traditional societies of, of viewing yourself was in relation to, like, universal truths about man, you know, things that would come from religion. These are things about every man that are true, and so that's how I understand myself. But Montaigne said, you know, bump that. I don't need to understand man. I just need to understand me. And so he promoted like a radical form of self-understanding that was individual rather than general, completely self-focused. In his view, the highest virtue is authenticity. It's being true to yourself. And, and completely knowing and understanding yourself. So virtues like wisdom or holiness or heroism, those things were, were secondary to Montaigne. He thought the most important thing was being the authentic you. And he also wrote that people should reject anything that prevented you from fully expressing that individuality. You know, whether it was the government or religion or family, you know, he thought you needed to, to put those off so that you could fully express yourself. And at the same time, he thought you shouldn't prevent anyone else from expressing their individuality. Are you starting to see why I'm saying that Montaigne's views shaped modern America? <laughs> you know, in modern times, Montaigne's view of the self is the dominant way that, that we view ourselves. You know, some people review to this or uh, refer to this way of viewing ourselves as um, expressive individualism. Um, Mark Sayers, who's a, a pastor and writer from Australia, he wrote a book called uh, Disappearing Church, and he expounded on some of the key kind of tenets of, of expressive individualism. So uh, Mark Sayers said in, in expressive individualism, the highest goods are individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression. You know, and, and in this view of expressive individualism, 
traditions, religions, received wisdom, anything that restricts individual freedom or happiness or self-definition should be reshaped or deconstructed or rejected or destroyed. In the expressive individualist mindset, um, institutions, things like uh, the government, the church, large corporations, big civic groups, things like that, institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst because they tend to restrict your individual freedom. And forms of external authority are rejected or minimized and personal authenticity is seen as, as the guide for your life. Now, you, know, you, you may or may not like some of these aspects of, of expressive individualism, and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever view yourself as an individual. You know, there's some positive aspects of individualism, and I'm not saying that we should go back to the traditional way and we should view ourselves completely as you know, members of, of a group. There are good and bad aspects of that as well. And there'll be something new in a thousand years that will be the way that people think of themselves, and there'll be good things and bad things about that. But I think the reality is that in, in modern culture in America where we live, expressive individualism is, is so kind of the, the dominant way that, that we view our lives that it's, it's kind of the only way that, the only identity that, that matters, and I don't think that viewing yourself solely through a lens of expressive individualism is, is healthy or biblical. You know, look at Galatians 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In Colossians uh, 2 and 3 is this extended metaphor about dying to ourselves and being alive in Christ. And so I think, you know, the primary way we should view ourselves as, is united with Christ, Another French philosopher, his name was Blaise Pascal, he put it like this. Not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we do not know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. So I think the, the primary way that we're supposed to understand ourselves as Christians is, is united with Christ. And secondarily, yes, we're individuals with individual giftings and likes and dislikes. And yes, we're, we're members of groups. But, you know, to, viewing ourselves totally through the, the expressive individualist mindset is, is contrary, I think, to the gospel in, in a lot of ways. But I, I'm not trying to talk expressive individualism too much, but I do think solely viewing our, ourselves through that lens um, causes a few kind of societal problems. Um, you know, first, the, the primary commandment of expressive individualism is to be true to yourself. And I think that just directly conflicts with the Christian ethic of the ultimate authority comes from Christ. You know, or as the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You know, second, expressive individualism tends to lead us to rob others of dignity um, and view relationships as very transactional. You know, if, if you are constantly focused on yourself, on how does this relationship help me? How can I express myself through this relationship? It's naturally going to make you look at relationships in a transactional way. But if we're going to treat others with love, with dignity, with charity, um, if we're going to see the image of Christ in others, I think that's going to lead us to um, put their interests before our own. 
And thirdly, uh, expressive individualism, you know, because it, it demands that we kind of minimize or, re- or reject these institutions um, like, like governments, like uh, big civic groups, like the church, other large institutions, um, because those things tend to restrict personal freedom, that erodes some of the life-giving community that those institutions have traditionally provided in the past. You know, we've, we've seen that play out in America, right? It's not just church attendance that's dropping, but participation in all sorts of, um, like, secular social groups is, is dropping as well. And I think that's, that can be harmful to society. You know, but don't take my word for it. Um, I saw a study from Harvard University. Ever heard of it? Um, it described the state of loneliness in America as a societal failure. So this study asked people, like, how often in the last four weeks have you felt lonely? And 36% of all respondents reported feeling serious loneliness, which the study defined as feeling lonely almost all the time or all the time. So 36% of the people in the last four weeks felt lonely almost all the time. It's even worse for young people, though. Uh, among the group that was 18 to 25, it was 61%. Like, that's staggering. 61% of 18 to 25-year-olds felt lonely almost all the time. Another study found that loneliness affects your personal health more than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So the answer, right, is that we all take up smoking, and we go and we, you know, smoke breaks with other smokers, and we're finding community there. Just smoke less than 14, and you're good, right? Oh, they're never going to let me do this again. Uh, So a lot of these tenets of expressive individualism, the way that it leads us to arrange our lives, I think, uh, can be problematic if we're only viewing ourselves through an expressive individualist uh, mindset. So Montaigne's first big idea is we should view, yourself, view ourselves as a self, as an individual. And that was related to his second big idea, and that was of imminent contentment. Imminent like I-M-M-A, imminent contentment. And that's just a fancy way of saying seeking our contentment in the material world. You know, things that are imminent are material. They're here and now. They're things you can grasp, like you know, products or, you know, kind of power, friendships, those things that are here in the material world. And this is opposed to the transcendent, um, things that are otherworldly, um, like virtue, knowledge, holiness, those sorts of things. You know, the traditional view was that meaning in life could be found in pursuing matters of transcendent importance. So for Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, that meant finding meaning in pursuing things like virtue or the common good. For Christian theologians like St. Augustine, that meant finding meaning in pursuing the kingdom of God. But Montaigne thought that pursuing transcendence was pointless. He, he thought we're not really fully capable of grasping it, and he also thought it caused harm to society because you had religious wars and you know, other sorts of persecution that he thought was caused by people pursuing the transcendent. Instead, Montaigne thought that we should focus on material pleasures in life and arrange our, our lives in a way where we're constantly engaging in activities and partaking of pleasures that would keep us interested, 
satisfied simply by these everyday material pursuits. So instead of trying to find meaning in the pursuit of God or of holiness or knowledge or virtue or the common good, you know, he thought we should you know, set our sights lower. Just enjoy a good book or a good meal or a fun trip or a stimulating conversation. And he also promoted what we would probably call today mindfulness, just that he thought we should be totally, in, you know, fully engaged in these activities, trying to get all of the pleasure out of it that we can. So he said, you know, when I dance, I dance. When I eat, I eat. The idea, just be present in what you're doing. But Montaigne admitted this kind of life requires a variety of pleasures and the resources to fully indulge in those pleasures. You know, that, that meal that's delicious, the first time you ate it, you know, it may not hit the same the, the 50th time. So you have, to, you have to switch up your activities. You have to arrange your life in a way where you're, you're getting a lot of variety of different types of things to keep you satisfied. Really, the goal of imminent contentment is to be distracted, to live a life filled with pleasurable distractions. That should be America's motto, right? A life filled with pleasurable distractions. We're experts in that. Montaigne, he, he only thought this life was possible for like the upper-class folks like him. Montaigne, he, he retired to his castle at his vineyard estate at age 38. So he had lots of time to dance and eat and a lot of resources to do that thing. But because of industrialization and the equality of conditions and opportunities that America provides... You know, imminent contentment, pursuing those pleasures and finding our contentment in those things, has become the universal standard of aspiration in our society. You know, every, it's possible for everyone. This is essentially, you know, the American dream, to pursue happiness, but, you know, through consumption of material goods, acquisition of power and, and status. But lots of people have noticed that even in our American society that's built perfectly to maximize those things, um, to find and pursue contentment through material pleasures, we're still unhappy. Another French philosopher, and I swear this is the last one I'll mention, Alexis de Tocqueville, he went on a trip around America in the 1800s with the goal of kind of viewing American society and writing about what he saw. And he noticed that even then, in the 1800s, America was, was steeped in this kind of pursuit of material pleasures. He remarked that Americans intensely pursued finding contentment and peace through consumption of, of the material and through acquisition of, of power and status. And even through that pursuit, they ended up as depressed servants to their pursuit of that contentment. Even though they had the right conditions, and were seemingly achieving that goal, it was, it was never enough. He noticed that people had the fear of missing out, that someone else was taking this material pleasure that, that they needed to make themselves feel content. He also noticed that people were worried that they had gone down the wrong path. If they had just done this other thing, they would have found that material pleasure, and that would have been the thing that would have made them happy. You know, if, if French philosophers aren't your jam... Maybe you'll be moved by this observation from the noted American thinker and poet, the notorious B.I.G. He said, it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. It's just beautiful. 
Psychologist Philip Cushman, he noted that Americans consume products to combat our sense of meaninglessness and emptiness, but that consumption actually feeds the industries that offer to distract us from our restlessness. You know, the entertainment industry, the beauty industry, the self-improvement industry. Cushman noted that, you know, psychologically, we as individuals, we're not going to buy unless we perceive a need. And not to get too conspiracy theory-ish here, but there's an incentive for these industries to ensure that we continue to feel empty so they can sell us products that help us not feel empty. Um, And do you see the perverse incentives here? Like maybe they aren't actually offering us anything that's going to help us feel less empty. The pursuit of imminent contentment has left us empty, frazzled, lonely, and lacking in true meaning. You know, constantly trying to paper over our restlessness with distractions. We've come so far down Montaigne's path as a society that now individualism and and, and this pursuit of material, it's the dominant way that that we arrange our lives and that we live. And the the result is that on a societal level, we we minimize the influences of a family, of community, of um, tradition. It's left us kind of empty and with the burden of forging our own path. Um, And so we fill ourselves up with the things the world offers to soothe us. Consuming goods, experiences, obtaining power and status, all in kind of this futile attempt to combat our growing restlessness. Now, if you've you've been around Shades a while, you've you've heard this quote before, but I think it's particularly applicable this morning. You know, St. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. There's just no amount of expressing ourselves or distracting ourselves with pleasures that's going to cure our restless hearts. Only God can do that. But how? The ways of the world uh, just aren't working, right? So I want to look at Hebrews 4, 9 through 16 now and, and quickly examine how it, how it lays out, I think, a path that contrasts with the, with the way of the world. So if you want to turn there now to Hebrews 4, 9 through 16, and I'll explain kind of the setup for this is the author is making the argument that God had this promise of rest for the Israelites. The Sabbath rest, but they, they failed to find it because of their unbelief and disobedience. But the author says that that promise of rest is still available for us today as Christians. Um, so if we want to enter this rest, I think verses 9 through 16 show us uh, three beliefs that, that can help lead us there. So let's start at uh, verse 9. So Hebrews 4, 9, it says... So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Stop there a minute. I think the first thing is we find Sabbath rest when we believe that we receive rest not as an achievement, but as a gift. 
the only thing the world can offer us is the opportunity to work, to work hard to try to earn some peace, right? If you've consumed enough material pleasures, if you have self-actualized enough, you know, you might just find that peace and contentment. But as we've kind of walked through, I don't think it's possible, really. And, man, that's a burden, right? That puts a lot on you. It's, it's all up to you. If you want to find peace, you better have the right job and have the right money and get the right things, go down the right path, understand yourself well enough, because if you don't do those things, you're, you're just not going to find it. But Hebrews kind of flips that on its head. It says, Sabbath rest comes as a gift from God. You know, we, we enter his rest, not earn his rest. We enter it, and when we do, we rest from our works, just as God did from his. And we can't view God's Sabbath rest through the lenses of expressive individualism and imminent contentment that, that require a lot of work to get there. You know, we have to stop striving in our works to create rest for ourselves and receive it as a gift from God. You know, expressive individualism says we have to make our own path, you know, create your own identity, define your own peace, and pursuing material distractions is, is you just have to keep going. There's always that new phone to buy. There's always a better trip to go on, another show to stream, uh, but it's never ultimately uh, going to work. To rely instead on Jesus, though, for our peace, to give up trying to earn it and to receive it as a gift, that's countercultural, you know? That goes against the American way of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Um, and so it's not easy because it's, it's not the dominant way of thinking. But the pursuit of the American dream is, is never going to lead to true contentment. And so I think we're not going to find rest until we we stop trying to earn it and, and receive it as a gift. Uh, let's keep reading. In Hebrews, uh, verse 11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Talking about the disobedience of the Israelites that, that kept them from ending God's rest. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so I think second here, we find rest when we believe that we are both material and transcendent beings, and God sees us as both. You know, look at how this passage poetically describes God as, as seeing and knowing your innermost being. It talks of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow um, and ultimately uh, to our thoughts and intentions of our heart. In other words, it's describing us as, you know, not just material, but also having these transcendent parts. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it echoes this language, I think. It talks about us in terms of being spirit and soul and body. You know, and as, as Christians, we believe that God has entered into our humanity. He's infused it with transcendence. You know, we are joined and united with the eternal Christ. What could be more transcendent than that? 
know, we can't neglect the transcendent, the spiritual part of ourselves, I think, and hope to find rest. You know, but what do we expend the majority of our time and energy on? Uh, you know, what we eat, what we wear, where we live, you know, all these material kind of worries. But look at Matthew 6, uh, 23 through uh, 34. It's a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about being anxious for what we eat and drink and wear, the material concerns. And he says in verse 32, For Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, God knows that we need the material. He knows we have to eat and we have to sleep and we, we need a place to, to live and things to wear. But I think Jesus warns us from expending all of our energy on the material and instead tells us to pursue the transcendent, the kingdom of God, you know, as a cure for our anxiousness. Sabbath rest that we receive from God, I, I don't think that's going to look like the material rest that the world envisions. You know, it's probably not going to come with a hammock on the beach next to our mansion. Uh, no, I, I think Sabbath rest is going to be found in the transcendent, in pursuing the transcendent, in understanding that we can't just feed the material parts of ourselves and ignore the transcendent parts of ourselves and, and hope to be satisfied. You know, so I think we have to view ourselves not just as material but view ourselves as, as transcendent and understand that, that our rest is probably going to come in the transcendent. All right, so let's look at the last part of Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know, so first I think we, we find rest when we believe that we receive it as a gift, not as an achievement. And second, we find rest when we, when we believe that we are both material and transcendent beings. And, and thirdly, here I think Hebrews 4 tells us that we find rest when we believe that our rest is in Jesus, our great high priest. Ultimately, you know, rest is in a person, in Jesus. It's not solely in ideas or philosophy or information. You know, think about it this way. If you're going in to comfort a restless baby, do you go up to the crib and, you know, with some really good ideas? You're like, you know, baby, have you considered that you just ate? And so biologically, you don't have a need for food. Be comforted, right? No, you, you pick up the baby, you take it in your arms, and, and you comfort it. And I can tell you from uh, firsthand experience that when, when something, you know, you're going through a hard time, in your family, something is, is going on, it's caused tension or anxiety or, or stress or restlessness, it's not a good idea to immediately go to your spouse to comfort her with some good ideas about why the situation isn't that bad or why it's going to get better. 
Those go over with like a lead balloon, I can tell you from experience. No, your spouse needs you to sit with her, to commiserate, to, to be there in the hardness, to, to have that relationship. And Brooke can attest that I'm preaching to myself here. <laughs> you know, ultimately, we're, we're not going to find comfort and rest solely in ideas or information. It's going to come through experiencing Christ's love. You know, look at how these verses describe Christ's love for us. You know, hear this and, and be comforted. You know, Christ came to earth. He entered into our weakness, experiencing all of the struggles that we face, and yet he overcame them all. So that we could, as it says in verse 16, have the confidence to draw near to God's throne. He tore down every barrier, made it so we can go with confidence before God's throne. The God who created the whole universe by his word, you know, and it's there at God's throne that we find mercy and receive grace. It's there that our restless hearts find rest in him. Ultimately, our rest is going to be found in experiencing and knowing and worshiping Jesus.